Welcome to this plus podcast, Demystifying NFTs, Episode 2. We would like to remind everyone that the information and opinions expressed by our speakers today are their own and do not necessarily represent the views of their employers or of PLUS. The contents of these materials may not be relied upon as legal or financial advice. And now I'd like to turn it over to Alice Budge. Hi, everyone. I'm Alice Budge from Specialist Swiss Group, one of the London market brokers. Thanks for joining us again for our second episode on demystifying NFTs. Today, we're going to tackle all things intellectual property and media law with Kissel Stratton and Wilmer's resident media lawyer partner, Jenny Strivens, and her colleague, Vito Marzano. And last time, we really delved into just the basics of NFTs around that in layman terms. And this time, we're going to go into much more detail. So stay tuned. And I'll pass over to you, Jenny. Thanks so much, Alice. As you noted, today's episode is focused really on the law, particularly in the U.S., as it deals with media and intellectual property aspects of NFTs. So we thought the best way to look into this would be to go through four of the main cases that have proceeded to different extents in the U.S. courts. Great. And before we dive into that case law, though, it might be helpful for listeners if we can understand what types of intellectual property rights we're talking about here. Yes. So with NFTs, U.S. courts have, at least to date, though where we've been concerned about two different rights. Those are copyrights and trademark rights. And how do they differ in the eyes of the law then? Both are, tie, both are IP, intellectual property protection, but they protect different things. So with copyright, the law is protecting original works of creators. These can be used for books, movies, music, screenplays, and scripts, paintings, and software, etc. Copyright does not really require extensive registration. In fact, copyright exists, a quote exists, from the moment the work is created. You don't even actually have to register it. Of course... The registration can confer certain benefits, including the ability to file an infringement lawsuit and the availability of statutory damages. Okay, great. So what kind of damages are we actually talking about? Just so I can get some more clarification. Is that statutory damages piece really significant? It can be, and it depends on the type of infringement. So under the Copyright Act, without registration, you're limited to recovering actual damages, which can be very difficult to prove or can be nominal at best. If your copyright is registered, however, the Copyright Act then allows a rights holder to recover both statutory damages and attorney's fees. That attorney's fees piece is obviously significant. And then the statutory damages range from $750 to $30,000 per use, but they can go up to $150,000 per use if the infringement is deemed willful. So you absolutely definitely want to register a copyright then, but you don't want to be left without that. (laughs) Um, uh, And what about trademarks then? Is Is that protection different or does it fall into the same? So with trademarks, the laws protecting business are assets and the trademark itself has, helps to differentiate products and services of one business or brand from another, from others, other, typically by using designs, logos, symbols, et cetera. Think here of the McDonald's M, the golden arches, if you will. Registration is more extensive or difficult for a trademark than it is for a copyright. Again, registration is important for the purpose of protecting a trademark right. Under trademark law, which in the U.S. comes from the, I never say this right, the Lonman, the Lonman Act. Lanham Act. Lanham Act, sorry. <laughs> it's one of those words that you always read and never actually hear anyone ever say to you. <laughs> um, so it comes from the Lanham Act. A rights holder can recover one disgorgement of profits or essentially giving back, which is essentially giving back the money they made off of the infringement mark, two actual damages and three attorney's fees. 
also under the Lamin Act, attorney's fees are only granted in really exceptional cases, generally where there's a willful, deliberate, fraudulent, or malicious infringement. So a bit of a higher mentor there. Okay, great. Firstly, I feel like I want to try saying Lanham now. Okay, I feel like <laughs> it's that H always. Gets oh, yeah, it's the silent H. It's such a, such a sneaky one. Okay, that's great. That's helpful in regards to explaining copyrights and trademarks in, in the states and giving us some understanding on that. But how does it actually coincide with NFTs? Our topic in hand. Sure. So we'll connect them. So we talked about in the first episode that NFTs can be a marker for many things and represent many things. But the NFT itself and the image that's connected to it is what typically we see coming under fire where that image allegedly uses in whole or in part some sort of intellectual property that belongs to or is protected by someone else. So a rights holder. That sounds a little bit abstract, but as we go through the case law, it will make more sense. As noted at the outset, we're going to talk through four of the main NFT cases in the U.S. and discuss how the courts so far have dealt with IP protection in conjunction with NFT usage of IP. So the first case we're going to talk about is the Playboy Enterprises case, which was filed in the Southern District of New York, November 2021. Brilliant. Are we talking about the Playboy that I'm very much thinking about right now? (laughs) We are talking about that Playboy. Because I love the name of their (laughs) NFT so much. Alice, do you know what the Playboy NFT is called? Gosh, it's going to be something really weird and sexual, isn't it? And I'm going to have a horrible guess. I won't make it. <laughs> so they're called Rabbitars. So the little Playboy yeah. Bunny avatars oh. are called Rabbitars. That's kind of I, cute sounding, though. I love this name. I absolutely love this name. Anyway, so Playboy Enterprises International sued www.playboyrabbitars.app and playboyrabbit.com and the owners and operators of those websites in an attempt to stop the defendants from counterfeiting Playboy trademarks in connection with the unauthorized sale of fake Playboy Rabbitars NFTs through their website. The website was using identical versions of Playboy trademarks and nearly identical versions of Playboy's legitimate online retailer of Rabbitars NFTs, which if anyone wants to look them up, that's at www.playboyrabbitars.com. <laughs> and, not uh, on your work computer though, right? <laughs> yeah, not on your work computer. I just want to ask a clarifying question. So we say fake Playboy Rabbitar NFTs. We're not talking about the NFT being fake. Correct. But, okay. Actual <laughs> NFTs ripping off essentially the <laughs> right. Playboy NFT. Okay. So this is a pretty easy one for the courts as defendants had essentially ripped or copied the plaintiff's entire lawsuit. Also, the defendants failed to respond to the suit filed, which is, it's not the best idea. It's generally not favored by the courts. So on October 22, the court granted a default judgment in favor of the plaintiff. The court found the defendant liable for trademark counterfeiting, unfair competition, and false designation of origin in violation of the Lehman Act, as well as trademark infringement and unfair competition violation of New York law, common law. The court found that their actions were willful and as a result granted statutory damages of $30,000 per registered trademark at issue, which was a total of $1,050,000. The court also granted permanent injunction. So to summarize, if you create an NFT that is an exact copy of someone else's NFT and then refuse to show up to court to defend yourself regarding this, the court will find you automatically liable. So that sounds very straightforward and makes your job sound very basic and easy. <laughs> Is it all, always like that, that easy? 
Yeah, but totally agreed. The result in Playboy was pretty much a no-brainer given the defendant's actions, but I promise you we have better cases to talk about. So the next case we're going to talk about was a much closer call and I think raised a lot of really good questions as it dealt with two entities who probably and potentially both could have ownership of the IP at issue in connection with the NFTs minted. Right. So the next one is Miramax v. Tarantino, the case also filed on November 21, but this time in the Central District of California, but has a bit more depth to it. So this case involves the rights to the film Pulp Fiction. Uh, Quentin Tarantino, the film's director, was auctioning off exclusive NFTs associated with the film via the secret network, namely seven uncut Pulp Fiction scenes. Interestingly, though, the NFTs were actually a collection consisting of seven NFTs, each containing a high-resolution digital scan of Quentin's original handwritten screenplay pages for a single scene from his screenplay, Pulp Fiction. There would be no other embellishment or additions to the actual screenplay scans themselves, um, which I was quoting partially directly from the filings. But the NFT would also include a drawing that would be inspired by some element from that scene. Despite the filing of the lawsuit, the first Tarantino a Pulp Fiction NFT, Royale with Cheese, which <laughs> is about 11 a.m. here and now I'm hungry, sold for $1.1 million in January 2022. So that sounds quite an insane amount of money then. And so the NFT derives from the film and the work in the film, and both Miramax and Tarantino both have rights to it, though. Exactly. So Miramax brought the lawsuit for breach of contract, copyright infringement, trademark infringement, and unfair competition. Yeah, and the breach of contract piece is pretty interesting here because the contract that Miramax is trying to enforce, the original rights agreement, was entered into in 1993. So in this agreement, Tarantino granted to Miramax, in exchange for what I assume was a huge chunk of money, in perpetuity throughout the universe, all rights, including all copyrights and trademarks, in and to the film, and all elements thereof in all stages of development and production, now or hereafter known, including without limitation, the right to distribute the film in all media, now or hereafter known, theatrical, non-theatrical, all forms of television, home video, etc., and excluding only a limited set of rights, which were reserved to Tarantino. Now, that's a lot of lawyer talk and good job on the Miramax attorneys, but they basically, he gave Miramax a lot of rights here. But there were some reserved rights, and those reserved rights were related to the soundtrack album to the film, music publishing, live performance, print publication, which included books, comic books, novelization, and audio and electronic formats, interactive media, theatrical and television sequel and remake rights, and television series and spinoff rights. So he wasn't left with no rights at all. Okay, great. And you mentioned 1993. I'm either really slow to the game on NFTs. I'm hoping they weren't around then, (laughs) weren't being contemplated, because otherwise I've got a lot catching up to do. But obviously, if it was, if they were the agreement, they weren't minted until 2012 or 24. um, So why can we now rely on that? So that's right. So the court had a lot of work to do here to answer what I think is a pretty interesting and novel question and to determine who gets the NFT rights, which rights in that contract would an NFT fall under? So would those be the rights that Tarantino granted to Miramax because it was distribution of part of the film? Remember, Miramax rights included all elements of the film. Or 
could the court determine that the rights would be in those reserved to Tarantino? And again, Tarantino reserved rights relating to print publication in electronic formats, as well as interactive media. Don't you think an NFT of a handwritten script with new artwork could land there? And then further, Tarantino's position was that because he had a separate copyright for the screenplay itself, that all of those rights remained with him. Okay, so it starts to get quite juicy between the two of them. Where did the court come out on this on them? We hate to say it because I think we as lawyers do not like having an answer to things. <laughs> but we, have, we don't have the answer. But the party settled out of court in September 22. Uh, frankly, we were surprised that this matter was litigated as long as it was, which was just about a year. It was clear from the language in the complaint that Miramax did not want to be suing Mr. Tarantino when it said, quote, Tarantino's conduct has forced Miramax to bring the lawsuit against a valued collaborator. Also, after the complaint was filed and previously noted, the first NFT sold for $1.1 million, but shortly thereafter, the remaining six were canceled with secret network citing, quote, extreme mark of volatility. So by the time of the settlement, there was much going forward risk that remained. I do want to point out one thing, and this came up with me and Jennifer last week. I've actually never seen Pulp Fiction. Shameful. Much to like her <laughs> chagrin. You guys are of a different era than I. Alice, have you seen Pulp Fiction? I don't think, do you know what? I don't think I have. Is it, does she wear a yellow outfit in it? No, that's Kill Bill. Oh, gosh. <laughs> <laughs> At this point, so many people have told me that I must see it. Yes. Which now I'm like, now I'm never just to be able to say this, it. <laughs> yes, this is your NFT homework for the week. Go watch Pulp Fiction. Ladies. <laughs> Okay, thank you. So far, we've talked about a seemingly completely illegal ripping of Rabbitars, followed by default judgment in that the paper case was closed because the other guy didn't turn up to court. And then a close call, copyright and trademark fight into the Tarantino versus Miramax case, which was settled out of court. Do we, by any chance, have any cases that have been fully litigated and come to a judgment? We do. And I mentioned this briefly on our last episode. So this case was filed in January 2022 in the Southern District of New York by Hermes and Hermes Paris against Mason Rothschild. And we just had a verdict this past February. So a lot to talk about here. The facts in this one are really pretty straightforward. Hermes is a famous designer fashion line dating back to 1837. It's well known for many things, but most notably probably is its Birkin handbag, which was first created in 1984 and first sold in 1986. Um, The defendant artist created a line of NFTs, which he called Meta Birkins, which were 100 digital collectibles on the Ethereum blockchain, which featured that Birkin design. And he made them look different than the traditional Birkin. A lot of them were furry. They were a little bit odd, but very obviously the Birkin design and he called them Meta Birkins. Hermes alleges that the Meta Birkins reached about 1.1 million in total sales and that the creation and marketing of the Meta Birkins constituted trademark infringement, false designation of origin, trademark dilution, cyber squatting, injury to business reputation and dilution, common law trademark infringement, and misappropriation and unfair competition. Okay, that's great. I mean, firstly, I can't believe that Jane Birkin created this bag just because she couldn't find a suitable bag for a plane journey. I know, it was such a fun (laughs) origin story. (laughs) Yeah, I love that. So those are obviously the Hermes claims, but what was the defendant's defense then? So first is the damages. Rothschild noted that the first 100 were priced at $450 each. 
and had also received 7.5% of secondary sales. He estimated that he made about $125,000 from the initial sales and royalties, not the $1.1 million that Hermes alleged. The substantive defense was interesting on a couple of fronts. Rothschild argued that Hermes could not meet the two-pronged Laman Act test for trademark protection. The test established in the Gruner case asked one, whether the plaintiff's mark is entitled to protection, and two, whether the questioned use of the mark is likely to cause consumer confusion. Here, Rothschild said that there is no way that his digital NFT art, which depicts a bag that were in fact not made by Hermes, would cause consumer confusion. Beyond that, though, Rothschild also made a constitutional argument under the First Amendment, arguing that his work should be protected, artistic expression, or interpretation. He famously likened his work to that of Andy Warhol's famous Campbell Soup artwork. So he sounds like a confident guy then. This is Andy Warhol. (laughs) (laughs) An interesting parallel on obviously what they both put forward, but what did the court say in the end? So it was a closer call than expected, and it did go all the way to trial, despite that both parties filed for summary judgment. So this went to a jury. The trial started on January 30th, 2023, and we had our verdict on February 8th, 2023. The verdict, on the other hand, was not a close call at all. The jury found for Hermes as to the three remaining claims, which were trademark infringement, the trademark dilution claim, and the cyber squatting claim, and they awarded Hermes $110,000 in trademark infringement and dilution and another $23,000 in cyber squatting damages. So $133,000 in total. Yeah. So while we do have a jury finding in favor of the rights holder here, the damages are far less than I think we were expecting to see. Yeah, that's exactly right. And there is a lot of vocal opposition to this verdict from the artist community. So I very much expect that this isn't the last we've seen of the issue and really is just the first page of a book here. We'll have to keep a close eye on other cases that raise these similar issues. In the meantime, maybe this is a cost of doing business for Mr. Rothschild, who certainly increased his visibility and artist cred via this NFT release. Very interesting. Personally, I think I'd rather have an actual Birkin handbag, obviously with a retail price of about $13,000 starting rate, um, <laughs> than, a, than a meta Birkin NFT, which I think the first one that was sold for 43000 USD. But then again, people who collect these things are obviously collecting these high-end handbags and NFT artworks for a similar reason, hoping that the value will increase in the future. Yeah, I think that's right. And as we noted, we're closely watching other cases that are winding their way through the courts on this issue. The last one we're going to talk about today is the Nike versus StockX case filed in the Southern District of New York in February 2022. And this one has an interesting wrinkle because it deals with the digital art piece of the NFT, as well as the NFT having a tie to rights in to something that exists in the physical world. So With that, I'll let Vito walk us through the facts on who is StockX and what is this NFT about? This case, okay. (laughs) So (laughs) this case, again, contains causes of action for trademark infringement, false designation of origin, unfair competition, trademark, dilution, and then under New York law, injury to business reputation and dilution and common law trademark infringement and unfair competition. StockX is an online resale sneaker retailer that has a subsidiary that allows individuals to sell other items such as designer clothes, collectibles, electronics, watches, and so forth. And it's not a small company. In 2021, the company was valued at over $3.8 billion. 
StockX claims to use an authentication process that sets it apart for the EBs of the world. So how does this connect it to NFTs? I knew you were going to ask that. (laughs) (laughs) In January 2022, StockX came out with something called the Vault NFT Collection. Each NFT in the Vault is tied to an actual physical item that StockX sells. In the case of this lawsuit, we're talking about the Nike Jordan 1 sneakers. StockX's position is that NFTs are not quote, virtual products or, quote, digital sneakers, but more akin to a key to access the underlying stored item in the vault with no other form of intrinsic value. The NFTs are tied to a good that has already been authenticated by StockX. Right. That's exactly right. So in StockX's answer to the complaint, which the complaint filed by Nike, they argue fair use. And they say there's really no difference between StockX and other major retailers that use images and descriptions of products to sell those products. So if a major sporting goods retailer or department store can list Nikes for sale online, why can't StockX do the same via an NFT? That's exactly their argument. How did the court then come down on this one? So it hasn't yet. Um, despite this case being ongoing for over a year, we're not very close to an answer in this one at all. So in May of last year, Nike filed a first amended complaint to add counterfeiting and false advertising claims. It said that it purchased four pairs of fake Air Jordan ones from the vault NFT collection. So StockX files an answer in June. It says Nike's claims are meritless. It cites to a authentication process, which it claims has, quote, revolutionized the industry. And noting that if any customer reasonably suspects a fake, StockX will investigate it and issue a refund or replacement. StockX also notes that its verification process is understood by its own customers and that it has been praised by consumers, commentators, and industry participants And this is interesting. These specifically include Nike. So Nike itself has basically rubber stamped and said your authentication process is great to StockX. And now they're arguing about it. But since that time, since the answer was filed, the case has been just absolutely mired in discovery disputes. The current deadlines as of today, March 16th recording, are the close of fact discovery on March 21st followed by a post-back discovery conference with the court on April 7th, and then expert discovery scheduled to close on July 14th. As an aside here, the court is clearly tired of both parties in this matter, and they have now said formally via order they will not um, allow for any further adjournment requests absent exceptionally good cause, and there will be absolutely no further extensions on the discovery calendar. So we are waiting to see What's next in StockX? So July 14th, the big day, the big reveal, and we should have an answer and see what happens at the end. We will see, yeah. Brilliant. I can't wait. Hopefully, maybe in a future episode, we'll be able to give you all feedback on that. I was going to say, we'll definitely be watching. I'll definitely be watching this one closely and we'll come back with you with updates. Great. I'm a, not a trainer wearer, sneaker <laughs> wearer, you say in America. I might need to do my research on what these look like. Anyhow, thank you so much, guys, again, for coming on and speaking to us specifically about this topic. Next week, we are going to be talking about whether NFT is seen as a commodity security or other. Um, We've got our email address, which we have put, we will be putting on LinkedIn or on the Plus website. So if you've got any questions, 
as ridiculous as they might be, please send them through to us and we will do our best to answer them in one of our later episodes when we do a Q&A episode. And thank you so much, guys. Thank you. Thanks, Alice. This was fun. As always. Thank you for listening to this plus podcast. If you'd like to send a question to the speakers, you can email them to nftliabilitypodcast at gmail.com. And if you have ideas for a future plus podcast, you can share those by completing the content idea form on the plus website.